Hey Icon, good to be with you today for what I hope is our last Sunday watch party before we start to gather again in real life. So whether you are at the watch party right now or you are at home on your couch or on your commute or whatever it is, uh, my hope is that this is the last time that I am preaching to a camera only and not also to you. So look forward to seeing you on February 14th. Love to see as many of you out there as possible. Uh, let's jump in. We are in John chapter 6, uh, continuing in our He's the One series. So turn to John chapter 6 with me. Uh, Robert Ingersoll was a prominent 19th century agnostic kind of American writer, lawyer. And he, he said this, he said, if you want to find out what a man is to the bottom, give him power. Any man can stand adversity. Only a great man can stand prosperity, right? I, I, I love that line uh, because it says so much about the reality of power. In fact, uh, Frederick Nietzsche, a, a far more pessimistic person, said that the world is the will to power and nothing besides. For Nietzsche, power was everything. He saw it under every rock and in every intention, every motivation, that every person simply wanted power, that that was the motivation behind everyone and everything. So this week, we're talking about how Jesus is the one with the power. And, and this is a particularly relevant moment for us to be thinking about power, given the fact that in America, we just had a transfer of power from President Trump to President Biden, and, uh, and it was not without its hiccups, let's put it that way, right? So uh, there has been a, a really important national conversation about the nature of power, about who should be in power, how you gain power. And I have experienced over the last four years or so an increased energy around this question of power and how Christians should think about it. So this week, we are going to talk about how Jesus is the one with the power. And we're looking at, going to look at three things. First, that Jesus has the kind of power we want. Second, that Jesus has the kind of power we don't want to admit we need. And third, that Jesus has the kind of power we really need. Okay, so he has the kind of power we want, the kind of power we don't want to admit we need, and he has the kind of power we really need. So let's jump in. John chapter 6, we're going to look at two very, very familiar stories for anyone who's grown up in church, Jesus feeding the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water. And I hope that we'll be able to see something just a little bit different than we normally would. So John 6, starting in verse 1. It says, after this, and, and if you remember, if, if you haven't been around, Jesus just got done fighting the Pharisees, not physically, but, you know, verbally jousting with them. He had healed a guy on the Sabbath day, right? A paralytic guy who's never been able to walk, healed him. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day were all upset because Jesus did it on the Sabbath day. They're like, pretty cool that you healed the disabled guy, healed a, a paralyzed guy, but I mean, you did it on the wrong day. So then they wanted to kill him for healing on the wrong day. Totally makes sense. So it says, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. 
Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Now, a couple things here. First, I love these little commentary things that John puts into the gospel, right? There's, there's, a, there's definitely like a retrospective perspective on this gospel where John's looking back on these stories and he says to us in the text as we're reading, he, he spoils all these stories, right? But he says, he goes, Jesus said this to test him. He knew what he was going to do. He was just testing his disciples, right? So what I picture is that later on, John was like, hey, Jesus, you knew what you were going to do didn't you? you? You were just messing with us, weren't you? And Jesus is like, yeah, I knew. I was just testing y'all and you failed and whatever, right? Like that's, that's what I like to picture. I like to picture Jesus in every, everyday moments like that, right? So that's the first thing. Second thing is this, and something, honestly, I had never noticed about this story before. And I, I've preached this a number of times. I've listened to tons of sermons on Jesus feeding the 5,000. Here's what I never noticed. Feeding the people was Jesus's idea, Right? Notice there in verse 5, it said, lifting up his eyes, Jesus, lifting up his eyes, seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Jesus's concern was for the people. It was Jesus who was aware of their needs. It was Jesus's concern for their well-being that drives this whole story right? Uh, Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, verse 31 and 32 says this, therefore do not be anxious, saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. How? How does the heavenly Father know that we need all those things? Because he made us. Because he put those needs in us, right? I mean, it's very likely that all, as all these people were gathering around Jesus, that he was feeling hungry. And he's like, man, if I'm hungry, then certainly these people are hungry. And rather than just satisfying his own hunger and turning to Philip and going, hey, man, we got any food? I'm starving. He looks out at all these people, 5,000 men with all of their families and goes, hey, where are we going to get food for all of them? Here's what I think. Sometimes I wonder if God is aware of my needs. And, and I, I think that you wonder that too. I think sometimes we wonder if God is aware of our needs because it feels like we're alone. And it's all on us to solve whatever problems, to meet whatever needs that we face, that it's all on us to do that. We feel alone in that. And, and being alone in that, if it's all on us, that, that stresses us out. It brings anxiety into our lives to go, man, I got to eat, I got to drink, I got to have shelter, and it's all on me to do. Which is why Jesus says things like in Matthew 6, where he goes, do not be anxious about these things. Don't get stressed about these things. Don't worry about these things. I know that you need them. And Jesus, over and over and over and over through the Gospels, demonstrates that not only does he have the power to care for our needs, but that he's thinking about us. I mean, think about that for a minute. That Jesus, right now, is thinking about you. He's thinking about what you need. He's thinking about what you want. He's thinking about your future. He's thinking about your past. He's thinking about your present. He's thinking about you. Man, I, I, I wish we could just pause right here. And if you're at home and you have the ability to just hit the pause button, do that. 
And just think about that. Just mull on that for a minute, that Jesus is thinking about you, and he's aware of your needs, right? So Jesus asked this question, and John says this was a test. And it's not like a pass-fail kind of test, but it is Jesus going like, hey, how are you all going to think about the problems in your life? So let's see how they answer. Verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of these people to get a little. A a, a denarii is uh, about one day's wages. So Philip looks out at all these people, probably 15, 20,000 people. And he goes, there is no way we can buy enough food for them. It would be 200 days wages, two thirds of your entire salary to pay for food for all of these people, right? Philip fails the test. Right? Philip looks at the problem, looks at the obstacle in front of them, in front of him, and, and as I think about it, he looks at the solutions horizontally. Right? He looks for solutions horizontally, meaning that all of the potential ways to solve this problem have to fit into this narrow band of human experience. To simply go like, okay, do we have enough money? How many people are there? And what's the gap? And how do we fill that gap? And the only solutions could exist here in the material, physical, human world. That's how Philip wants to solve the problem. And and it fails Jesus' test. But Philip is not the only one who answers. Verse 8 says, One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Right? So Philip looks here and goes, there's just, there's no way. We don't have anywhere near enough money. Andrew comes to Jesus and goes, hey, um, I, I, I found this boy. Maybe, I don't know if Andrew like stole the food from the boy. Let's, let's assume not, right? Like, but he brings this food to Jesus and goes, hey, there's five loaves of bread and two fish. Like, I don't, I don't know what you can do with that, right? And, and, and keep in mind here, that the disciples have spent some time with Jesus now. They've seen him turn water into wine. They've seen him heal the official's son. They've seen him make a paralytic able to walk again. And I wonder if Andrew's going like, man, I saw what he did with the water into wine. Maybe like, maybe that extends to bread and fish too. Maybe, I don't know, Jesus, what could you do with this? Andrew passes the test that Jesus gives. And it's not because he passes the test by simply coming to Jesus and going, I don't know, Jesus, but I bet you could figure it out. Watch what Andrew does, because this is our move. This is what we can do in these moments, right? We, we're facing down some seemingly impossible situation. We look here and go, there's no good answer. But Andrew goes, here's, here's what we can do. Here's what I have, and I'm going to bring it to you and go, Jesus, I don't have enough, but here's what I have. I trust you. What could you do with this? How could you multiply what we do have rather than simply looking at what we don't have? Philip looked at the situation horizontally. Andrew at least is, is, is thinking about the possibility, entertaining the possibility that there is a vertical dimension to this thing too, that Jesus' solutions don't just work in the physical world, but that there is something more that Andrew brings all that he has to Jesus and Jesus multiplies it. Verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. 
so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. Love this about Jesus. Jesus is all about the leftovers. I'm all about the leftovers. We're like, we're like the same that way. So uh, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Now, I, I don't think Jesus is the kind of guy who would brag, right? Like, I don't think he's like a show off or anything like that. But I do wonder if Jesus then goes, hey, listen, we got these five loaves of bread and these two fish. We're going to feed maybe 20,000 people. Why don't you just bring back the leftovers just to see? Oh, oh, there's 12, 12 baskets now? Huh, interesting. Maybe just like keep that in mind for the future. Instead of Philip, you you worrying about all the money. I just brought back more food after feeding all these people. There's now more food. I don't know. Just, just keep that in mind, right? Jesus provides and then some. Jesus has the power that we want. We want to have the ability to provide for ourselves right? We, we want to be the kinds of people that can provide for ourselves, that can overcome any obstacle, solve any problem. We want to have that power. We want to be that powerful. Jesus is. And there's, there's something that happens in our brains where we, we come to the ends of ourselves and we realize, man, I can't solve this problem. And so we reach, we reach for people and things that we think can solve the problem or we hope will solve the problem, but they are so very often not Jesus. So we reach for political figures. We reach for business leaders. We reach for people in our lives, spouses or friends or family members. We reach for social leaders. We reach for whoever we see around us who we think is powerful, who we think can provide for us the thing that we need. We reach out to them in a desire and a hope that they have the power to solve the problem, to overcome the obstacle, to provide for us in the way that only Jesus can. Because he, he, here's what happens. Every time we reach out to one of these people or things in our life that are not Jesus in order to solve a problem that we cannot solve, we, we are not only grasping at a false God, we are not only grasping at what the Bible calls an idol, but we are in fact only strengthening the position that those people and things are in over our lives. We are giving them power and influence over us every single time we reach for them. They are preying on our lack of faith in Jesus and using our lack of faith to only make themselves more powerful. Jesus has the power that we want. Jesus has the power to provide. Jesus has the power to overcome whatever challenge, whatever obstacle lies in your way. And these people saw it, right? Verse, verse 14 says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. 
Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 18, there is this prophecy that one will come, a prophet will come like Moses, and his kingdom will be without end. He will free all the people from slavery and lead them into this new kingdom. Jesus feeds these people, and they look at him and go, this dude's the dude. This is the guy. This is the prophet. This is the Messiah that we've been waiting for. They are beginning to connect those dots. So this is my encouragement to you. Remember each and every time that Jesus has provided, that God has cared for you, that God has helped overcome some obstacle in your life and perhaps done so miraculously, remember those moments so that you can connect those same dots and go, he is the one with the power. These other guys, these other people, these other things, they aren't. He's the one with the power. Number two, he's the one with the power that we don't want to admit we need. Verse 16 says, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now, the Jews were not naturally a seafaring people, right? And even the the fishermen among them were a little nervous on the Sea of Galilee, had big waves, big storms would come up real fast. And and in all of like Jewish mythology and poetry, the sea and the water is, is representative of chaos and fear and mystery and death. So they're already a little on edge here, just being out in this boat. Then this big storm comes and they're getting rocked all over the place. And all of a sudden in the distance, they see a guy, right? And I don't know who saw him first, but I imagine somebody kind of looks up and goes, okay, hey guys, there's, there's a dude uh, and he's like on the water and walking and they're like trying to, you know, not sink or whatever. And they're like, yeah, whatever, whatever. Peter, you know, and Peter's like, no, 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 pretty sure. I think it's Jesus, right? Like, they're like whatever, Jesus is walking on water. And they're like, no, he's got long hair and he looks like, and they're like, everybody here has long hair and looks like us, right? This is just, right? And they, so they finally see Jesus and they're like, what in the world? And what does Jesus say? What is Jesus' response? He sees them freaking out. He sees them afraid. He sees the situation they're in. And the first thing out of his mouth is what? Why are you guys so scared? These waves aren't that big a deal. You should see the waves I created in the oceans. This is just a little little lake, a little sea. Why are you guys so scared? You guys are just babies. Stop being babies about this. You haven't sunk yet. He doesn't say any of that. What does Jesus say? It is I. Do not be afraid. He comforts them by saying, I'm here. I'm here. And so there's no reason to be afraid. He doesn't respond to them with shame or guilt. He doesn't belittle them. Nor does he reduce the actual danger or, or characterize the danger of the situation as being not that big a deal. He doesn't say these, are, these waves are nothing or you guys are babies. He goes, listen, I'm here. That's, that's the solve. 
you don't need to be afraid anymore, not because this isn't dangerous or, or scary, but because I'm with you. And I am more powerful than they. Now, here's what I, what I think lies underneath some of the stuff and why I call this a, a, a power we don't want to admit that we need. Because underneath all of the reaching, all in the, underneath all of the grasping for other false gods and other means of power, uh, underneath these concerns about provision and protection, underneath all of that is fear. That, that's what's inside of us. That's what drives us so often is fear. Now, we don't want to admit that, and, and even more so, we would never admit that when we are reaching for these other political, business, worldly kind of figures in our lives to calm that fear, we would never consciously admit that we're doing so because we believe that they have a power that, that, that they claim to have. No, 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 that, that's, not how, that's not how we do it. Christians will always say, no, 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 we know Jesus is the king, but our actions, and maybe more importantly, our emotions, tell a different story. In fact, I, I would argue, and by all means, this last year has been crazy. But even more than that, the last five years or so, I have seen emotional reactions in people, in Christians in particular, Fear bubbling up out of their hearts as they reach for false gods to calm those fears. All the while saying, no, Jesus is the king. Jesus is the one that saves. Jesus is the one that protects. Jesus is the one that provides. But then there is this fear that's driving them to reach for other gods. And it's this fear that Jesus is speaking to. And does so a lot, actually. Almost a hundred times in the Gospels, Jesus talks about fear, says, do not fear or do not be afraid. He often affirms the, the very real danger of the world around us, the very real scariness of the world around us, rather than diminishing that, simply says, I'm with you. And this is actually the consistent testimony of the scriptures. In Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10, God says, fear not. Why? Because the Assyrians aren't that big a deal? Fear not, because the Babylonians just have, they talk a big game, but they can't fight at all, right? Fear not, because the Canaanites are weak. No, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous God is our God. God is the one strong enough. So when we, when we feel that fear kind of rising up within us and we are tempted to begin to reach out for those false gods to provide us the peace and the calm and the security that we crave, even while they are claiming to be able to solve whatever problem we're beginning to have fear about that we would remind ourselves. The way, uh, actually, Andy Crouch in his book, Playing God, says this. He goes, every idol makes two simple and extravagant promises. The first, you shall not surely die. The second, you will be like God. Those are the promises of false gods. And so when we feel this fear rising up within us, we have all of these voices and all of these things and all of these people around us going like, I won't let you die. 
In fact, I'll empower you to be like God, to be able to solve this problem all your own. I can bestow upon you that power. That is the lie of the false God. Jesus alone has the power to protect and provide for us. But also, more than that, he has the power to care for our hearts in the process. James chapter 4, verse 8 says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And this is the, this is the hope we have. This is the promise we have. It's the calling that, that Jesus calls us to. That, that as soon as those desires, as soon as the, the rumblings of fear, the, the beginnings of a desire to reach out, as soon as those begin, that instead of looking around horizontally for some person or thing that can solve our problem, that we would immediately draw near to God. And he will be near to us. And that our fear will be abated, not because we see how powerless the things are around us to hurt us, but because we are in the presence of God. And in the presence of God, those things will appear powerless compared to the power of God. Number three, he's the one with the power we really need. Verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias had come near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. I mean, these are like rabid fans chasing the beetles. Like, okay, there was a boat and he wasn't on the boat, but they left the boat and there, there's the boat, but he's not there either. And where'd the boat go, right? Like the Beatles reference might be dated. I don't know what's now, it's Backstreet Boys or whatever, right? Like, and, and if there were message boards, they'd be like, okay, well, he's not on Capernaum. Like, where, where's his boat, right? Verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus, and one of my favorite things Jesus ever does, goes, answers them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. They go, hey, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus goes, stupid question. Here's the answer you need. Truly, truly, I tell, I, I'm saying to you, you're not chasing me down because you saw the signs. You're chasing me down because you were hungry and I gave you bread. Those are two different things, right? Now, the, throughout the Gospel of John, we talked about this, how this word signs is really meaningful throughout the Gospel. That at the end of John's Gospel, he tells us that he chose all of the, the stories told in this Gospel so that we would see who Jesus was, that he is the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we might have life in his name. So this whole book is the life of Jesus curated for us to be able to have faith that he is who he says he was. So these people are all chasing Jesus, and Jesus goes, I, I know why you're chasing me. It's because you were hungry and I gave you bread. You want something from me. But you missed the larger point. 
right? Just the same way that the Pharisees looked at me healing the paralytic and were upset with me that I did it on the wrong day. Like didn't even give two thoughts to the fact that I literally healed a guy who's never been able to walk. They're like, yeah, whatever. You did it on Saturday, bro, right? The same way these crowds were looking at him going like, hey, you gave us food. I want more. Let's go, let's go chase the guy with the food. And Jesus going, I'm sorry, does it not even occur to you that perhaps if I have the ability to turn five loaves and two fishes into enough food to feed 20,000 people, that there might be more to me than food? Like maybe I have some other things going on in my life. Jesus goes, you're missing the signs. You're missing the whole point of this. You're missing out on what you really need. He continues, verse 27, Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Now, I, I love comedy, right? I love stand-up comedy. I like improv. And there's this, there's this uh, rule in improv uh, that's called yes and, right? So if you're in an improv scene, you've got a couple other actors around you and somebody walks into the scene and says, I, you know, I'm a traveling encyclopedia salesman that everyone else in the room or on the stage will go, yes, I, I'm going to affirm that's what you are and I'm going to add the next thing rather than going like, no, you're not and, and shifting the scene a bunch, right? And, and so that doesn't matter uh, for this point, except that I like talking about improv, right? So this is what Jesus does over and over and over, says yes and. Yes to what you're talking about, and there's more. Yes, I care about your physical needs. We already talked about this. In the Sermon on the Mount, he makes a huge point. God knows you need physical uh, you know, food and drink and all these things. We know that, and, and he's always going to care for you in that way. And there's more. And there's more. Right? So we see this over and over and over in, in the scriptures, right? Like we, we are saved by faith and that faith has implications. That God calls us to work, to work hard, to work with excellence and to never make an idol out of it so that we rest as well. There's always a yes and. There's yes, this is meaningful and there's more to it. So Jesus goes, yeah, you know what? Uh, the bread is good and the fish is good. I'm glad you ate. I, I care that you, are, that you are fed. I care about all those things. And don't miss the fact that it's pointing to more. Don't miss the fact that it's pointing to eternal life. Verse 27 again, there, there is food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. So yeah, food, but don't miss the larger thing because you're hung up on the food. Verse 28, when they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Because it's simple. It's a very simple door to walk through. All you have to do is believe that Jesus is who he says he is. The argument that Jesus just had with the Pharisees about how he is God he is divine. He is the son of man. He is the son of God, which is why he can heal on the Sabbath. Jesus goes, it's so simple. All you got to do is believe that I am who I say I am. That's it. Now, 
walking through that door, that very simple door, that one step to take to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. On the backside of that door is a whole new world, a whole new world of decisions and values and concerns and sacrifice and love and care and joy and peace, all a million things. But it's just one simple door to walk through. Because if you'll just believe in me, Take my word for it. See everything I've done and everything I've said and go, yeah, this is, this is the Son of God. Man, we're in. Let's go. And then you can see what all of the implications of that are. Now, the people's response to Jesus is kind of remarkable. Verse 30. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Right? They're asking for a miracle. You say you're the son of God. Okay, show us a miracle. They have a suggestion even. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, there's a lot in this story that makes a claim to the divinity of Jesus by all means, the feeding of 5,000, walking on water, really clear evidence of his divinity. For me, though, this might be the clearest evidence of Jesus' divinity, his patience and grace with the people here who followed him across a lake. He told them, you're only here for food. They're like, "Mm -hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, okay, you're the son of God. Why don't you do a miracle to show us you're the son of God and I don't know, maybe make food for us? The fact that Jesus doesn't just kill all of them right at that moment and like peace out back to heaven tells me that he is a gracious, loving, and patient God because that's probably what I would do, which is one of many reasons I am not God. Verse 32. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the promise of Jesus. This is the claim of Jesus. This is where we have to take Jesus at his own word and on the grounds that he set. Jesus says to the people, I am the bread of life. If you come to me, you will never hunger again. If you believe in me, you will never thirst. Now, is this about food and drink in the physical sense? Yes. And and more. He's already told us that. There is a, breath that, a bread that leads to eternal life. So he's going, yes, and, and, and there's more, that you will never ultimately hunger and thirst for the things that are most core to who you are, right? People basically need four things. We need protection, right? We need to be able to survive. We need provision. We need to have our needs met to food and clothing and shelter and drink and those kinds of things. We need people. We need a a family, a community around us. We need relationships and we we need a place. We need an identity. We need to know who we are. And Jesus goes, if, if you hunger, if when you hunger and thirst for those things, Right? And, the, and the, the initial pangs of hunger start to emerge in you. And maybe it's, maybe it's a fear that starts to happen right in here where you wonder if you're safe and you feel the need for protection. 
Or you wonder if you're secure and you, need, you feel the need for provision. Or, or something begins in here where you feel lonely. Or you feel like you don't kind of know who you are and what your place is in the world and you're just drifting. Whenever those, those initial hunger pangs begin, that if we would turn, not horizontally, not to go, okay, what can solve this? Can I get a better job or more money? Or is there a political leader or a person in my life, a spouse or a potential spouse? Is there something I can do? Is there something I can tweet? Is there a picture I can post? Is there likes that I can count? Is it, instead of looking here for those things and, and finding ultimately that you will never be filled up by them, that if you just look here, you look vertically. Come, come to Jesus the way Andrew came to Jesus, with just what you have. And in this case, what you have might simply be hunger. It might simply be fear. It might be loneliness. You come to Jesus and go, this is what I feel. I'm hungry. I'm afraid. I'm nervous about the future. I feel alone. That Jesus goes, I, I will always provide for you. I will always protect you. I will tell you who you are. You are my child. You are an image bearer of God. And man, th this is a great example of something where if you, if you are feeling this lack of identity, this lack of clarity about who I am, you're trying to prove yourself, you're trying to make something of yourself, you're trying to be somebody, and you're using all kinds of people and things in order to try to be somebody, I'm telling you that if you just came to Jesus and you said, who am I, Jesus? He goes, you are my child. You are my son, my daughter. You are an image bearer. And you just clung to that truth, you would be shocked how quickly all of these other things would fall away and how quickly the anxiety you feel in your heart because the things that are out here require you to constantly chase them. It's never ending. You find your identity in a person, you always have to please that person. You find your identity in a, an organization or a tribe, you always have to follow their rules. You get out of line and you're done. You're gone. You're cut off. You're canceled. Whatever. You find your identity in some sort of kind of curated online persona. Well, the moment you stop doing that thing, you're nothing. It's gone. The, these, these false gods are monsters who are never full. C.S. Lewis once said, you can never get a cup of tea large enough or a book long enough to suit me. That he speaks to this insatiable hunger. Now, he's talking about something disgusting like tea. I might say coffee, but the underlying truth is there. They go, when we look here, we will never be satisfied. It can never give us the protection, the provision, the people, the place, the identity, none of it. It can't. So instead, when those initial moments of hunger come up in us, if we look to Jesus, we go, Jesus, will you provide? I don't know what the future holds. I can't control the future. I can't make enough money to make the future secure. Will you please make me secure? And you actually believe that? that he makes your future secure. And man, it is based on a whole lifetime of chasing security unsuccessfully in other places. You know, you make more money today than you probably ever have. And do you feel more secure? I'll wait. 
I don't know if your guy just got elected or if your guy just got removed, but do you feel more secure, less secure? Does that have a material impact on your life? It doesn't. Because beyond just giving lip service to Jesus is the king, the reality is Jesus is the king. He's the only one who actually has the power. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we know that you are the king. We've seen what you do. We've seen the, the miracles that you've performed, the, the, the way that you have taught us, the wisdom, the understanding that you've given us. But God, man, in those those moments of fear, in those moments of loneliness, in those moments of need, we reach out for things that in our, our, our conscious mind knows are not as powerful as you are. And yet they feel more imminent. They feel more real. They feel more near. And so they tempt us. They tell us, man, if you, if you reach out for me, you will never die. If you trust in me, you will be like God. It has been the same lie since the beginning. But Lord, you promise to give us peace. Peace that is your kind of peace, not peace like the world gives, but peace like you give, peace that is unconditional, peace that is not dependent on what's going on around us, but peace that is secure and strong because you are never changing. You are not tossed about by the waves. You are not dependent on world events. You are secure. And when we find our security in you, we too are secure. Jesus, may, may those hunger pangs remind us to go to you first, to remind ourselves of what you tell us and what you have shown us and what you have demonstrated and what you have done for us. We love you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as always, we're going to transition to a time of response we do this in a couple of different ways. The band is going to come back and sing, lead us in some songs. Uh, we give during this time because we serve a generous God who has provided for us. And so we, we faithfully give generously, believing that he will always provide for us. And we take communion. And I think in a moment like this, a sermon about power, uh, communion is never more relevant than it is. Uh, One of my favorite quotes from George Orwell in 1984 says this, we know that no one ever seizes power with the intention of relinquishing it. That's what Orwell says about humans, and I think he's right about most humans. Jesus is the exception. Jesus had all the power in the universe and willingly relinquished it on the cross for our sake, knowing that his death would bring about far more powerful agent for life in the world. So he laid it down, laid down his power. He laid down his life so that we might see ours taken up. So we celebrate that with communion. We take the bread to remember the physical pain, his body broken for us. We drink the wine or the juice to remember that his blood was shed and that shed blood is the seal of our relationship with him. Now, 
Before we do any of that, we always take time to reflect. So I want you to close your eyes and take the next few moments to think and pray and meditate on what you've heard today.